Justification itself for right and done becomes more of a social category. It has to do with how do I get into the covenant community of the people of God? How do I enter into this social group? Mm -hmm. And for right and done, that was the real issue that Paul was actually fighting about. And as you bring up Stendhal, uh, it's not an individualistic thing. It's a, how do I get into this social group or this yeah. people? Welcome back to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 93, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. So we wrapped up a series of episodes on federal vision. Embedded in that conversation, you may have heard our professors mention another theological controversy, namely the new perspective on Paul, a debate that's been around for some time now. What is it and how should we assess it? Because it deals with the New Testament, Second Temple Judaism, and doctrinal matters. Joining the podcast for this series is Dr. Marcus Minninger, Professor of New Testament Studies, Reverend Andrew Compton, Associate Professor of Old Testament Studies, and President of Mid-America and Professor of Doctrinal Studies, Dr. Cornelis Venema, who will be joining in future episodes. Well, this is an interesting topic, the new perspectives on Paul. I don't know how new it is anymore because this started, what, four, five decades ago? And I know it's gone through significant revisions, but but it's um, it has sort of uh, touched down in a lot of areas closer to home and in the church. Um, a few interesting remarks by my former colleague, Kim Riddlebarger. He uh, noted that, look, if the new perspective uh, on Paul, and we'll, we'll define more of that in just a moment here, but... But generally, it's been an occasion to rethink, uh, or at least as it relates to the church, it's been an occasion to rethink what Paul means when he uses language uh, of justification or salvation or faith. And and so that's had quite an effect. Uh, Kim has even said, look, uh, this is no small matter on several accounts. If true, it is quite possible that one of the most bitter fruits of this misunderstanding of Paul can be seen today in much of the anti-Semitism and nativistic anti-Catholicism that characterizes so much of Protestant Christianity. Luther's misreading of Paul not only divided Western Christendom, Luther quite intentionally, to be sure, laid the groundwork for much of German anti-Semitism, which ultimately manifested itself in Kristallnacht and the Holocaust. You know, he's using jarring language here, to, and, and later even says, look, if, 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 if we've gotten Paul wrong on a number of these points— then, well, Reformed Christians should not only revise their confessions, they should collectively repent for dividing the church and, again, laying the groundwork for anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism. Perhaps sackcloth and ashes would be in order. <laughs> it's, again, pretty. Uh, it, he's, he's putting it out there in a pretty jarring fashion, but you know, there's, um, this is not simply a debate that has remained up in academic circles. It's not something that, that only New Testament scholars debate in the pages of journals, but it's affected how people even think about what salvation is or what the Christian life is, is to be uh, driven by. So that uh, kind of at least frames what it is we're talking about. Well, it'd be good, I think, uh, if I'll just say a few things uh, about what the new perspective is. What are we talking about, in a mm -hmm. sense? Just so that we're we're clear on some definitions, I think in, in evangelical and reform circles, sometimes the new perspective is misdefined, uh, misunderstood uh, in terms of its, its essence. Um, the new perspective is actually not, for example, a 
view of justification by faith. Sure. That's not really what's at its heart, although for many of its proponents, it has led to that. And that's, of course, where a lot of the conversation has rightly been. But um, to understand that, we have to understand what lies behind that. And what lies behind that is, in essence, not really a new perspective on Paul or on the Christian view of justification, etc., but firstly, a new perspective on Second Temple Judaism itself. What uh, was taught, believed by Jews in the Second Temple period? Uh, so, in other words, the period uh, during the existence of that the Second Temple when Ezra and Nehemiah uh, had rebuilt it, and then uh, all the way up until 70 AD when it was uh, destroyed. That time period is where the debate comes and and what was Judaism teaching during that time period. And that can be helpful too even in in going forward because you know again what I read here does show sort of where where the nub hits in in certain uh theological matters related to us today but but I think what you're saying helps us to sort of back things off a bit and first get the perspective on no pun intended but on what's really going on here this isn't simply a bunch of scholars who came out and said i know let's bring down the reformed confessions and all these presbyterians right and and i think that it'll help us see that there are valuable insights in the new perspective uh or at least they've posed very valid questions mm-hmm. and prompted an uh, an important kind of discussion on on certain topics uh, also certainly prompted a lot of unclarity and even false teaching uh, that flows out of it from some on other topics. But just, you know, we did a podcast recently on the Federal Vision, and just as an example, many conservatives sort of equate new perspective and federal vision all in one sentence as if they're the same. They're very, very different in their origins. Some federal visionists have liked and used various aspects of the new perspective, but most new perspectivists have no idea what the federal vision even (laughs) is or wouldn't care because they came from very different origins. First of all, the new perspective came much earlier uh, and secondly, it came in a very different context of the guild of New Testament studies and and of let's say Judaic studies, studies of of Judaism in the in the ancient world. So to start things off, uh, generally speaking, there were some precursors to it, but generally speaking, the new perspective, although it wasn't called that yet, was generated uh, by E. P. Sanders in a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which he published in 1977. So you can see that it's been quite some time. Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And what Sanders was seeking to do was to describe the pattern of religion, as he calls it. We could pretty much call it a soteriology, a view of salvation, present in Judaism of the Second Temple period, especially uh, in, in Palestinian Judaism, meaning in the in that region, not in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And then compare and contrast that to the soteriology of Paul. And his basic thesis was that Christian scholarship, which especially had been German Lutheran scholarship, not entirely, but that was the heart of it in the 19th and 20th centuries, had crassly, badly misrepresented Judaism itself, not describing it fairly on its own terms, but um, sort of using a straw man mm-hmm. that was actually just flatly wrong. 
And he, he maintained that if you look at Judaism as a whole on its own terms, it's not a kind of do-it-yourself Pelagianism. It's not a um, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps we're constantly counting out our merit so that we have more merit than demerit, and that's how we relate to God. Instead, he maintained that Judaism of the time period was not legalistic, but was in fact a religion of grace. And then he went on to uh, look at length at different parts, different you know uh, literature of the time period to show what was it that Jews of the time period were actually teaching. And how would it be best to characterize it? His thesis in a nutshell, it's not really a small nutshell, it's kind of a big nutshell, but (laughs) he boils it down to what he says that Judaism of the Second Temple period is teaching what he called covenantal gnomism. And he describes that on page 422 of his work uh, as having numerous components. The uh, content of covenantal gnomism is this, and, and if you listen to this, you'll notice that there are many good components here, right? Even gracious components in what he said were the stock beliefs of Jews. Now, of course, we're going to have to ask the question, which we'll primarily ask later, has he defined things adequately here? Uh, Is there some fuzziness, unclarity in what he says? Yes, there is. But here's what he says, that the basic pattern of belief for Judaism was that God had chosen Israel, that's grace, of course, right? And given the law, and the law implies both God's promise to maintain Israel's election and Israel's requirement to obey, God rewards obedience and punishes transgression. The law provides for means of atonement, Mm -hmm. such as, say, the sacrificial system, Mm -hmm. and atonement results in maintenance or reestablishment of the covenantal relationship all those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement, and God's mercy belong to the group which will be saved. And he says then on the same page, an important interpretation of the first and last points is that election and ultimately salvation are considered to be by God's mercy rather than human achievement. So Sanders is clearly describe, he, he's clearly making an effort to describe Judaism and to defend it based on what he finds. And he comes to then the further conclusion analytically that on page 427 of that book, the Judaism of before 70 AD, this is what he says, kept grace and works in the right perspective, did not trivialize the commandments of God and was not especially marked by hypocrisy. The frequent Christian charge against Judaism, it must be recalled, Uh, is not that some individual Jews misunderstood, misapplied, and abused their religion, but that Judaism itself necessarily tends towards petty legalism, self-serving and self-deceiving casuistry, and a mixture of arrogance and lack of confidence in God. But, he says, the surviving Jewish literature is as free of these characteristics as any I have ever read. So, essentially then, Sanders is saying that Judaism relates grace and works in an appropriate and good way, not Mm -hmm. some crassly legalistic way, that it is in its essence a religion of grace. And because of that, he comes to essentially say that Paul and Judaism did not really disagree about how gracious salvation was. 
they essentially only disagreed about who brought that grace. Yeah. That 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 grace for Christians, of course, came through Jesus, which uh, Jews, non-Christian Jews, did not accept. And that's really the whole dispute. Christians were persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah and Lord, and Jews were persuaded that he wasn't. But as for matters of how much grace is involved in salvation, that wasn't really a dispute at all. That, in fact, Paul and Second Temple Judaism were largely in agreement about that. Now, some subsequently, uh, just as an as a add-on note, we can't get into all of the details, uh, some prominent proponents after Sanders, like N.T. Wright and James Dunn, essentially took... Sanders' whole view of, of Second Temple Judaism as a given, correct, but disagreed somewhat with what Paul and Judaism were fighting over. Mm-hmm. They agreed that it wasn't legalism versus grace. They agreed with Sanders about that. What they thought it was instead was a social issue that Paul thought Gentiles should be included as co-heirs equal with Jews and Judaism in general did not. And that's why they parted ways. So there was a difference in opinion about exactly what Paul and Second Temple Judaism were disagreeing over among, say, Sanders, Wright, and Dunn. But they would all say what they were fighting over wasn't legalism versus grace. And the reason is because Judaism itself was not legalistic. Now, that's what the new perspective is in its essence, and then from there come a lot of different potential implications. So some of that would be rethinking what exactly is the nature of Second Temple Judaism? Is Sanders correct? Is he not correct? There's been lots of discussion about that. And then on, on another front, lots of discussion about, okay, well, if whether or not Sanders was correct about Judaism, whether or not Judaism was legalistic, what was Paul teaching? or Jesus, or anybody else in the New Testament, what is the exact disc- discrepancy? And so we need clarity on on all of those things. And it does show what what sort of was motivating these questions. You know, a big part of this thing, maybe from a different angle, Christopher Stendhal uh, had come in rethinking what Luther was all about and, and gave a very sort of, um, my understanding, this isn't exactly my wheelhouse, but a, but a very sort of introspective reading of, of Luther as a very conflicted man. Uh, and, and so that affected how he read the New Testament and such that, that Luther was reading in his own existential angst into Paul's texts. And, uh, and that's how some of this stuff kind of um, comes together as well. Whereas if you have then, if you don't assume that kind of existential angst, uh, and instead you think through, as you were just describing, Marcus, this this re- um, re-understood corpus of Jewish literature, well, then you start turning to some of these texts, you know, and that, that yes, speak to, in fact, several um, well-known texts that speak to justification or speak to salvation, but also are in the context of Jew and Gentile. You know, that gets brought up a lot. Some of that is Paul's covenantal system uh, at work. But, uh, but then you can, you can see why then they're saying, well, yes, you can... If you're reading these verses with this kind of approach in mind, sure, you you, you may end up thinking this is about uh, individual salvation, chiefly Paul Paul totally disagreeing with a completely legalistic bunch of Jews. Um, but if instead you're thinking in these categories over here, well, then these texts sort of have don't have the sharp edges you once thought they did. See, and it it it, it kind of uh, affects then how what you're actually bringing to the text. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would say so. So Stendhal was a separate thing in some respects, but it, mm-hmm. they too, his influence does strongly play into all of the discussion. And he would essentially say that we're all in the Protestant tradition being too individualistic. We're mm-hmm. thinking always about individual salvation, where an ancient person like Paul would be thinking in corporate categories, and that we're imposing our concerns about my individual sin. And that feeds especially into what Wright and Dunn said. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, Wright or Dunn uh, might say, when Paul says we're not justified by the works of the law, he doesn't mean we're not justified by our own individual obedience to the law. Because, after all, nobody in the ancient world thought you were. No, yeah. Nobody in the Jewish circles thought you were. That I'm not agreeing with that claim, but that mm-hmm. is the claim he makes. Uh, instead, what he means is that we're not justified by specific sort of, we might call them sacramental practices in a sense. We're not justified by certain social practices and uh, such as circumcision, dietary mm-hmm. laws, observing certain feast days. These Jewish practices that marked somebody out as a part of the covenant. So this is, of course, what we'll have to talk about as we get on into analysis of all of this. Um, but justification itself for right and done becomes more of a social category. It has to do with how do I get into the covenant community uh, of of the people of God? How do I enter into this social group? Mm-hmm. And for right and done, that was the real issue that Paul was actually fighting about. And as you bring up Stendhal, uh, it's not an individualistic thing. It's a, how do I get into this social group or this yeah. people? Um, that was really where the, uh, for what they thought the actual conflict was between Paul and his non-Christian Jewish contemporaries. Well, and this whole approach has, I think, done a, a great service toward getting many of us Protestants to dive back into much of this material, uh, much of the, and these, these, um, these Second Temple Jewish texts. You know, even I, I think of how the Belgic Confession talks about the books of the Apocrypha, and it does say the church may read these. I think it's interesting. It says the church may read these, not just individual Christians, but the church may, not to prove any point of doctrine or whatnot. But I don't think the church has really done much of that. Uh, you know, we, we, we've often treated the Apocrypha as, as maybe almost dangerous to read, like we might become Catholics if we, if we read too many pages of it or something. But this whole thing has, uh, I think, cued us into a better, maybe a, a more holistic way of reading a lot of these texts, trying to think through the complexity of, of the Jewish literature. And of course, that, that's kind of what's in play here as well. What constitutes the literature that, that Paul may have been dealing with? You know, it used to be, uh, you, people would just assume that the Babylonian and the uh, Palestinian Talmuds um, would, were, were sort of the Jerusalem Talmud, sorry. Jerusalem and Bavli, I think, are the two. <laughs> it's so late for me in history. We get out of the Iron Age. I'm not really comfortable anymore. Well, it's but, after uh, the first century, so I don't know anything about okay. it. Okay, well, yeah. good. We're in the same boat. But, but they, would, they would sort of go to these and uncritically assume that what the Talmuds mentioned was precisely what Paul was dealing with. And this has helped, I think, to think historically and better periodize this literature and, and zero in on what texts are sort of defining or, or, or coming out of the, the system of religion uh, that Paul may have been dealing with. And, and so it's done a lot of analysis, not just Sanders. I think Sanders' own analysis uh, has some limits that we can talk about in our next session. But, um, but it's at least driven scholars back into this literature. 
uh, to ask questions of it and to give it maybe a more charitable read than than has often been the case. But the question then has come up about, well, how does this literature uh, relate to what we're reading about in in the New Testament? You know, is Paul reading texts? You know, is he reading these particular books from Qumran and saying, oh, I don't like what the Qumran sect says, so I'm going to formulate my letter to Galatia with that in mind? Or, or you know, did the people in Galatia, had they been reading the Qumran texts? Right, you could, you could conceive of this as a textual debate, um, or you can think of it as more, well, these texts reflect uh, thinking that was held popularly among different Jewish groups that Paul would have heard. But it, but it starts to at least raise this, this question of method. You know, what texts from the Second Temple period um, are operative here? And how would Paul have been uh, interacting with that material? How would other Jewish groups be interacting with that material such that how Paul is describing his Jewish opponents, we can uh, we would be able to say, oh yeah, here is... Uh, extra biblical evidence of what those opponents were saying. That's part of what comes yeah. in, into the method and I think Since we're just mainly describing right now, um, I would say there, there are two factors that you want to understand are behind the new perspectives occurring. Two, I mean, there's many more, but mm-hmm. two that we can mention here. Um, one is that in the 20th century, there was a great proliferation of new discoveries of Jewish texts, mm-hmm. such as Qumran, mm-hmm. such as the Nag Hammadi uh, scrolls, but others as well, new archaeology, but then as well with that, uh, new publication of known Jewish texts. Mm-hmm. So we, we're getting a lot more information from the Second Temple period itself, which is what you're, you're mentioning, that we're not simply sticking with later rabbinic texts, but mm-hmm. we're, we're giving we're getting new information and and further studying the information we had about the earlier time period, the Second Temple period itself. And then the second factor, which is very important to keep in mind, is the Holocaust. That there was a an enormous movement, still is in some ways, to seek to redress Christian wrongs, other people's wrongs as well, but in part Christian wrongs against Jews, uh, anti-Semitism, etc. And that led to a lot of activity, some of which is very valid. Uh, but some of which is very unclear and unhelpful, right? Uh, we don't we, we don't want to ha- harbor wrong thinking mm-hmm. about people with whom we disagree, right? And it, I think that Sanders's efforts brought up a very important and very valid question in this respect: Are we misrepresenting mm-hmm. Judaism? And that's something that we as Christians should have a very keen concern in. It's a a basic ninth commandment issue, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want to falsely represent somebody else's views in in an unfair and inaccurate way. And have we done that or not? Um, Sanders started off that question in a very provocative way. Over time, people have come to see, I think conservatives at least, have come to see that he wasn't quite correct in his conclusions, but neither was the old reductionistic assessment of yeah. this crass Pelagian Judaism either, that it's more nuanced than that. And I think that's helpful for us to think about as we as we move forward. The, the, the second, the, the domino effect, though, is what does any of that mean for reading Paul or reading what Jesus says in the Gospels or Hebrews or anybody, right? In other words, uh, there's clearly a conflict between Paul and non-Christian Jewish opponents, 
Jesus and the Pharisees, what are they fighting about? And and those two go together. But we have to get the we do need to attend to them distinctly. We get as Christians invested in, well, we want to make sure that that we uh, come to certain conclusions about what Paul says, and and that's understandable. But we do also need to distinguish that from the separate question of, okay, what exactly did Pharisees or Sadducees or Qumranites or others um, teach? And can we describe that in a way that's not misrepresenting, but but appropriately balanced in our formulation? So the new perspective puts all of these things on the table. With the new perspective on Paul framed and described for us by the professors, we'll move on next week to more of an analysis and critique of this view. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.